0: You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. So it was the second year of Alcoholics Anonymous. There were two groups. Their heads were down, they were circled up, they were unable to hold their face up to the light, and a newcomer arrives. And he knocks on the door and whispers to the group's eldest member something only he could hear. And the elder and the newcomer come back to the group, and the newcomer speaks up and says this, I must tell you that I'm a victim of another addiction with a stigmatism worse than alcoholism. You may not want me among you. Will you let me join, or is it too risky? There was a dilemma. Do they let him in, or do they keep him out? The conversation went back and forth for a while. He stays. He'll bring so much trouble if he leaves, he probably dies. So what do we do? I mean, we deal with alcoholics only. Should we not sacrifice the one for the sake of the many? And here's this man off to the side wondering, will I be let in? And then someone spoke up and said something prophetically, something significant. What we are really afraid of is our reputation. We are much more afraid of what people might say than the trouble this alcoholic might bring. And as we've been talking, five short words have been running through my head. What would the master do? Nothing else was said. The man entered the circle and came into the light. Light. Physically, light is a mystery. It is both everywhere... (laughs) and nowhere. I see everything by it, and yet I don't really see it. Think of the brightest light in the universe, the sun. It is the fountain of life, the source, an illuminating ball that makes everything visible, and yet if you look at it for more than 10 seconds, you're bound to go blind. Most of the light spectrum is invisible to us because its waves are either too long, such as microwaves, or too short, such as x-rays, Mobile phone signals and nuclear radiation are all basically the same thing, just in various sizes. Scientists have gone back and forth over whether light was a particle, as Newton thought, or a wave, as Maxwell thought. And in a stunning conclusion, they decided that it was both. Andrew Wilson puts it like this. It is only because God created the world that there is anything to see. And only, God, only because God created light... That there is anything to see it with. And in the story of Scripture, light is one of the great images that God uses to make Himself appear and darkness hide. The very first words in this ancient book are In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters, and God said, Let there be light. Darkness represents all that is wrong in the world and is typically where evil prowls. If you just think of all the expressions in the English idiom lexicon, we use words like a thief in the night, black as night, deep, dark, secret, the darkest hour is just before the dawn. It's why classics like Star Wars have built into its plot line the great theme of light versus the dark side. It makes sense, actually, that the first words God speaks into the abyss are lights. And darkness represents all that is wrong in the world. Corruption, affairs, secrecy, violence, greed, envy. It represents everything we feel, right? Chaos and disorder and disruption. And throughout the Old Testament, God reminds us that the one thing that cannot physically exist with light is dark. In the story of Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant is made, and God shows up as a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passing between the animals, and the representation is God is light. This is how he shows up to seal the contract. And then in one of the bizarre miracles that still confound scientists to this day, God made the sun, the light, stand still, showing he is sovereign over the central controlling element of our world. And then in Exodus, how does God lead the people out by a pillar of fire by night? Why? To mirror what happened at the beginning, light piercing the darkness. And in the temple, a light is continually burning night and day through an oiled lamp. And the duty of the priest was to light up the sanctuary where God's presence lived as a reminder that even at night, light would overcome In Isaiah, the prevailing symbol God uses to remind the world he is coming is light. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. For those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Again, in Isaiah, we hear God say, I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoner from the dungeon, from the prison, those who sit in darkness. In Malachi, the words the prophet used to describe what's going to be like when God comes to Earth is the sun. But you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. And the first words John jots down in his gospel is God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And then Jesus takes his three most trusted companions. Up on a hill at night, and in a stunning moment, Jesus becomes transfigured. And Matthew describes him as the one who has a face that shines like the sun, and his clothes are as white as light. And then Jesus tells his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In John 8, we just read where Jesus says, I am the light of the world. One chapter over, Jesus repeats himself, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And of course, there's another side to all this. Darkness, night, the angel of death strikes at night. Judgment will appear like a thief in the night. When we share communion, we remember the night Jesus was betrayed John 1330 has a line, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out and it was night. And this is not John just adding a uh, unique narrative to the story. He's literally saying this represents something else going on. Jesus describes hell in Matthew 8 as the outer darkness. And the moment Jesus dies, the sky goes black and death and darkness seem to be the only lasting reality. And yet, Peter calls the church out of that darkness into light. In 1 Peter 2.9, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now... There is a lot of implications here, so I'm just going to highlight two. Because most of us hear that, and we think, of course, God is light, God is mercy and goodness. The problem is, in all of these, Jesus says lamb, Jesus says bread, Jesus says light, we fail to ask the question, what does this mean for my discipleship to Jesus? So here is the first. Light... Exposes us. Imposters in the spirit always prefer appearances to reality. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Well, in philosophy, the opposite of truth is error. But in Scripture, the opposite of truth is a lie. And we first get a glimpse into the world of evil and darkness through the tongue of a serpent. And that tongue does not engage fairly. It starts with a lie. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? No. No, he did not say that. And then he responds to Eve, you shall not die. Some scholars would say that Satan spoke half-truths. Meaning that Adam and Eve don't instantly drop dead, but they are expelled from the garden sanctuary that is God's presence and into the realm of the spiritually dead and ultimately do die themselves. And half truths are whole lies. Jesus goes on in John 8 to call out some of the Jews who are pushing against him. And this is what he says You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and he has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. This is how we keep up our appearance. This is how we stay alive. We have become convinced of our own illusions, and in an effort to keep people at arm's length, we lie. And we lie to ourselves first, And then the inner lie manifests itself outwardly. And maybe we're not out here telling bold-faced lies, but neither are we out here confronting reality. We have become master artists at twisting what's going on to downplay it or disguise it. In other words, we're just not confronting it. Honesty brings yourself to the light. It is us finally acknowledging what each of us share and few of us admit both our feeling of inadequacy and our coping mechanism. We rarely admit the fear and the shame and the guilt that we experience in life, which means we cover up how we are dealing with all of those things. We all have some type of insecurity. We all experience emotional pain. We have all said or done things against the character of God that we wouldn't dare say in a room this big. Nor would we share how in the world we are dealing with or not dealing with it. In short, we're dishonest. Because believing God's grace is good is not the same thing as receiving that grace. To mentally agree to the fact that God is gracious to me is not the same thing as tasting his grace. To make the claim God gives grace to sinners is not the same thing as claiming, I know the worst one. Some of us believe it is easier to be a slave than it is to be free. We would rather live in the facade and charades of parading through the world with no one really asking us questions and no one's engaging what's happening on the inside than we would confront what we have stuffed. We think that it's possible And sometimes, even preferable to publicly walk out our Christianity and secretly walk out our sins. And yet, I sense most of us in this room know that that will bury you alive. We inherently feel the hypocrisy. And then we think to ourselves, there is too much at stake. I have appearances to keep up. I have relational credibility to to maintain. I have a posture to endure. And the most insidious and dangerous lie is, see, people need me. Don't we all want to feel needed? Like it gives us a sense of importance, a sense of significance in the world. Like we're not irrelevant anymore. I matter. And you are needed, actually. <laughs> Just not in the way you probably think. You are needed, but not for your brilliant insights or your giftings or your competence or how well you are at organizing or leading something. It's not strengths that the family of God needs from you, it's you. And we can show off our strengths. Which means we can disguise our weaknesses and we hide our inner selves. The number one thing I have learned over the past two years is that what I need most is people who don't need me. Many of us are deeply concerned not only in how we look but who is looking. Because we have assumed that they need us. And in fact we we are assured that they need us. And thus, we live in the shadows, scared of the light because of what it will make us do, face ourselves. Christians get a reputation for saying one thing and doing another. We call it hypocrisy. But I am not very concerned with that reputation, and I am much more concerned with the fact that we're unwilling to even admit it. In order to be free from captivity, the first step is naming it. It is not just our sin that is problematic, it's actually our denial. It is our relentless ability to twist and turn and avoid and deflect. We will do all types of conversational gymnastics... Because it feels easier than looking ourselves in the mirror. And by looking in the mirror, I mean looking at another brother or sister in the eye. Why is it that a place like AA seems to have it down much more than we do? The first words, hi, my name is, I am an alcoholic. And in a matter of 10 seconds, what have you just done? You have taken all of its power from it because you have put a massive spotlight on it. All the shame that the phrase seems to incur is counteracted because it is the first step that unlocks the chains of addiction. It says, where is the spotlight? Put it on me. Sin is like mold. It grows in the dark. You want your house to rot? Avoid the foundation for five decades. You want mold to grow? Put a lid on it. You want sin to increase? Just ignore it. Just ignore it. I'm going to be honest with you because I sense this will resonate. The scariest part about being a pastor is probably the scariest part about being a Christian. It's not that this thing will fail, it's not that we won't accomplish our mission. Uh, It's not even that we won't grow numerically or otherwise. It's not even that I will fail. Those are all fears, but they have become so secondary over the last two years. The scariest part of being a pastor is that lingering feeling in your spirit, I am a fraud, and I'm just holding out hope none of you find out. See, we'll own our respectable sins. The things that you don't particularly love about yourself, but it's not really costing you anything to say out loud because the veneer still sticks and everyone can sort of agree. Oh, yeah, I understand. But it's the stuff that we will never share and that we will always hide that has made its way deep down into the crevices of our soul that we have convinced is not coming out, even if I wanted it to. That is the stuff that makes us liars. And then we rationalize to ourselves, deceiving ourselves, that we can live this way and the truth take root in me. When James writes, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed, he is not making a friendly suggestion. He is not saying this is one option among many. He is stating a reality. He's saying the only way to be healed is confession. And some of us, Have a serious problem with that, and right now, in this moment, you are trying to rationalize in your heads why that is incorrect. And let me just say, pastorally, that rationalization that you feel is the flesh fighting the spirit, and that guttural response that you feel is the spirit's invitation to come into the light. See, we believe that confession will make things worse because our deepest fear is folks finding out who I really am. Ironically, it's not until people engage with one another at the second and third level of our persons that we really gain any traction in life. And if you have ever participated in the art and act of confession, you know this to be true by experience. Because once that happens, the journey gets a little lighter because people are carrying it with me. And the journey gets sweeter because I can finally taste grace when I'm honest. And as a bit of a disclaimer, there is a tendency in the American church, because we love appearances, to not do well in receiving confession. And there is something profoundly wrong with the people of God that when confession happens, the instinctual response is shock and shame. Shock implies, I would never do that. And shame implies, I am better than that. But true confession does what God designed it to do, which is to bring us to the light and to make us free and to give us life. 1 John 5, 7, But if we walk in the light as he is in light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin, See, we don't actually have fellowship with one another if we're walking around out of touch with who we really are. Walking in light, in the open, among other followers of Jesus is what it actually means to be healed and to be free. We treat confession as a one-time rite of passage into the kingdom of God, but confession is a portal into the family of God and a people that are consumed by light don't want anything to do with darkness. Where do I need the light of the glory and grace of God to shine in my world? To refuse to answer that question and therefore to refuse to learn the art of brutal honesty with one another is to spurn the only word that can heal the deepest wound and redeem the darkest sins There exists a personal God who is full of personal grace that you will experience through his people. In a society of judgment, grace is offensive. The fact that you can do nothing but stand before God with an honest confession about who you really are and receive with open hands his loving embrace is the message of Christianity that we will never get over. And the theology of belief of that belief gets walked out in the practice of confession. And every time we spurn the Holy Spirit's invitation to confess, we spurn grace. The family of God knows me. Maybe, maybe, but in our world of niceties and pleasantries and need to keep reputations, we don't know the intimacies of one another. I believe I. Firmly believe God desires to do something among us and to grow us up into maturity. And maturity comes through the gospel of Jesus. Safety with one another over time. The gospel of Jesus, good news for bad people. Safety with one another. This space is a safe space to confess sin though it is not a safe space to sin. Over time, nobody changes overnight. And confession met with the gospel of the kingdom is the pathway to holiness, and holiness is a bright light in a dark world. But the concealing of sin toward one another is functionally saying to God, I do not want your grace. And what 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 we are saying is, I do not trust you. And we're functionally saying to the people of God, I believe in everything else. People's perception of me, the outer shell of me, the surface level things that accompany southern religion. I believe in those things. I don't trust grace. The church has an opportunity to do something radical. To trust that grace is real by modeling that it's real. And you only do that. You only do that when you are in touch with your own brokenness. So light exposes us and light erases darkness. In him was life and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. When you walk into a room and you flip on a light switch you don't say, and the light switch does not come on, you don't say, oh, the darkness killed the light. No, the light bulb failed to turn on. It did not do what it was designed to do, which was to light up a room. And if you have ever been in a pitch black room before and lit a match, what happens? Everywhere the match goes, light is just illuminating from the stick. There is so much talk in our collective world today about how dark it is even non-christians talk about it but particularly Christians just lament the darkness here's a question with so many jesus followers in this country or heck it was so many jesus followers in this city why is it so dark is it because darkness is just overpowering everything Is it because we think this world is a little like Star Wars where good and evil are battling out among the skies and sometimes the good side is winning and sometimes the dark side is winning and the effects of that battle get played out here on earth? Is that it? I'm not saying it's not dark. I think it is dark. I just don't think it's any darker than the day Jesus died. Might it be, might it be that if it's dark, it's dark because the light has failed. And I don't mean God. I mean us. It's not because the world is so wicked. It's actually because we are so complacent. It's not because darkness overpowers light. It's because collectively we have lived in such a way that the lives of light are pretty much indistinguishable from the lives of darkness. Sin is real. The evil one is real. Spiritual forces in the world are real. Darkness is real. There is some serious, dark, uh, evil powers that are real in our world. But this world is dark. This city is dark. Because we have failed. Not because God has failed. But we have failed. Our strategy. To reach the world for Jesus and to see a city and a world made new has primarily one factor that ages all the way back to the Israelites. And it's the adage, we can reach the world, we just need a few more people. Jesus took 12 disciples, literally a third of this room. And here we are 2,000 years later because a couple people took God seriously. What if, instead of cursing the night and how dark it is, we turned our attention and our energy into what it actually means to live into the light? Instead of decrying every issue in the world that is dark, we took the energy and became hospitable neighbors, convicted witnesses, dedicated co-workers, generous stewards. Instead of only lamenting the spirit of the age, We've channeled conviction to be ambassadors for another country and citizens of another kingdom where the light will never go out. There was no day darker than when the sun went out on the Son of God. There is nothing that the powers and the principalities of the world could have done to make it any blacker. And three days later, a massive boulder was pushed aside. And I just imagined beams of light But not beams of light coming from the sun into the mountain, but beams coming from the mountain into the Roman Empire. Light did not shine into the tomb. Light actually came from the tomb. And Jesus says, I am the light of the world and my rising will be rays of healing going out left and right and i like the sun will be the source of all light because actually that is who i am i give off light because that is my sole function to be light and you the moon a pure reflection of light and light guiding the way in the middle of darkness where people are wondering does light exist might that be a reflection of true light Light instantly pushes back the darkness. Instantly. And that comes in forms of prayer. It comes in forms of community, like confession. It comes in forms of self-control. Do I need this technology or fill in the blank or can I live without it? That comes in forms of scripture, dedicating yourself to concerted times, sitting in the presence of God. And that comes in forms of hospitality, opening your home up once every week or so to a neighbor. And that comes in forms of justice and mercy. Do we actually believe in a just and merciful God? If we do, how might we reflect that? We cannot say Jesus is the light of the world and live lives that do not reflect the light. Where we are going, there will only be light. There will be no darkness at the end of time. God is going to light up the garden that gets turned into a city by his sheer presence. And the glorious conundrum will be that the God who dwells in unapproachable light, which no one has ever seen, will not blind his children. The only thing absent in the new world will be darkness and all his friends. Because darkness cannot live where light is present. And that is the coming kingdom. But we can embody some of it now. Let's pray. Lord, we rejoice in the truth that you are light. And we are challenged by your spirit. We are convicted. With two things. Where does my life need exposing? Where does my life need exposing? To one or two other trusted individuals in the family of God. And where am I being invited to be light? That is the invitation. Lord, would you help us to be light? We cannot do it without you. So convict us and comfort us. Show us and then empower us. Give us grace where we have failed and help us walk in grace as we walk in the light. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.